this year of opportunity to me is super special. And, and, and it's that all year long, we're going to see things differently. We're going to learn how to track on God's voice, how to track on God's movements, to realize that there's no regular days, there's only supernatural days, that everything uh, is divine appointments, it's not accidental, God is moving around us, he's giving us opportunities to partner with him at every given moment, and so I, I want us all year long to be aware, it's this alertness, it's this humility to say yes when God asks you to walk into something, even if it is uncomfortable for you. And so we're going to do this in fashion by starting out with a book that I haven't taught in 26 years, and that is the book of Ezekiel, and I entitled the series Impossible Hope. And it's impossible hope because we're going to find out that when Ezekiel ministered, the Jewish people could not imagine a way to hope. It was impossible to them. It was not, they couldn't imagine not only people getting them out of the situation, they had given up on the hope that God could get them out of their situation. They were in complete desperation and despair. And I guess from a human standpoint, it made sense. So what God wanted to do is show up and say that they weren't to look through the lens of a human aspect. They were to look through the lens of a heavenly aspect. I want to address in this series our lives specifically so that any of us that are facing darkness or facing despair or facing hopelessness, that we would realize that God is above and beyond our own resources, that we are never alone, that we are never abandoned, that as children of God, he has a plan and he has something for you. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It means that you're not going to be left alone. And I want that type of hope to begin to pour into you. But before we get into anything about a book telling us about, oh, our lives and what does it mean for us, you always have to do your study. You have to do your context. That if we're going to open up a book of the Bible, context, context, context. Figure out what was going on in the world at that time. Figure out who the author was because that will inform every single thing you read. If you don't do the homework, you're going to read stuff wrong. That's how it works right? So we're going to do a little homework here at the beginning and talk about the book to get kind of our parameters, then we can dive right into it. So the first thing you need to know about the book of Ezekiel is, dang, it's long, <laughs> right? It's 48 chapters. It's massive. One of its chapters happens to be larger than five minor prophet books. Like, this guy is a talker. He's like, he and I are like, the same. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, oh my gosh, why are you still talking? You need to just mellow out, right? He's that guy. And, and in this book, the first 35, now we can go 32 to 35 and start shifting around there. But the first 35 chapters is some of the darkest material ever. It is so depressing. It is like judgment, 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 right? And you're like, well, that's why I don't do devotions in the book of Ezekiel. Certainly not at the beginning. And you're going to find out there's a great purpose for that. But what's fascinating is that around 32 to 35, you begin to see a shift. And it shifts over into hopefulness. And you go, well, why is it like that? Because the whole first portion of the book was telling Israel, you guys are in trouble and it's not an accident. This is judgment. I've given you a million chances to turn around. 
and you are not having it. You push me away, reject me, resist me, rebel against me. You are so not on my team, and I will get your attention one way or another. So why does it shift from that to hope? Well, if you do a little more study, you begin to realize there's a 13-year gap in his ministry. He goes silent for 13 years. 13 years later, he gets a word from the Lord that now that we are in this place, I want to start whispering hope. And he begins to talk about what it means to be brought back from devastation. What does it mean to rebuild? What does it mean to renovate? What does it mean to resurrect and come back alive? That Ezekiel lived in one of the dark times of our world's history, but mostly in terms of the nation of Israel. He lived during the darkest time of their national history. Why is that? Well, some of it had to do with the world situation. Some of it had to do with his nation. So let's talk about the world situation. For a long time, the Assyrian Empire had been ruling the known world, certainly the Middle East world. And they were a very brilliant people, very vicious people, highly organized, and they did an amazing job of keeping control. As a matter of fact, the Babylonian Empire would rise up and try to defeat them, and they would always lose. The Assyrians were too strong. But as with any international scene, you have different power players that come up. And so the waiting in the wings people are waiting for the nation to get into weakness. They're waiting for their key leaders to go into weakness. They're waiting for them to overstretch themselves, do the wrong thing, and then that's their chance to strike. Well, that's what the Babylonians did. Finally, a king by the name of Nabopolassar of the Babylonian Empire saw his moment. So he took his son as the general and had him go out and wage war against the Assyrians. By the time his son was done with them, that empire was wiped off the planet and it would never rise again. His son is way more famous than he is to us and far more familiar. His son is Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember the story of Daniel and all that stuff, you remember that name, Nebuchadnezzar. He's actually Nebuchadnezzar II. He was the general and the first major king of the new Babylonian empire. He was a pretty hardcore guy, right? All right. Well, back in Israel, when Babylon took over what Assyria had, they took over Israel's area. Now, Israel was already a mess. 117 years prior to this story, the Assyrians had already wiped out the north. As a matter of fact, the only thing left of Israel was not the all 12 tribes. There was only two, and it was the southern portion. It was called the tribe of Judah. It was only that little portion around Jerusalem that was still alive, but God was working with them, right? They would have good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, right? It was that kind of thing. But about 50 years prior to this story, one of the worst kings of Israel's history, Manasseh, had ruined the nation and led them into such depravity and paganism, they were not able to rise again. It didn't matter whether or not the amazing king, young King Josiah, he comes in, leads reform. It's just not good enough. They can't pull out of the nosedive. Well, finally, it comes to a place where Israel is taken over, and one of the things about Israel's history is they don't really like being dominated. I don't know if you knew that, but they get really agitated. And so they kept um, 
biting the hand that feeds them, we'll say. They kept leading little revolutions, and it was ticking Nebuchadnezzar off, and he wasn't going to play. So he actually beat them down, and he beat them down hard. By the time he gets done in 586 BC, he has destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, and he took all the Jews out of the land. Only the most poor were left. But he did so as each time they would rebel, he would do a deportation. There was three of them, three waves. The first deportation was to grab the rich, the famous, the nobility, the biggest, baddest, brightest. Because when they would take them, they would incorporate them into their kingdom, train them up as Babylonians, and then release them out into the world integrated. That was kind of their vision. Well, who famously did they grab in that first deportation? But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were the royal kids. They were about 14, 15 years old. They were the smartest. They were the fastest. They were the supernaturally connected. So they brought them in. They all got to go to the palace, right? We know a little bit about their story. Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries. They lived during the same era, right? Well, it was not until the second deportation when Ezekiel had become a priest at the age of 30, he needed to be a certain age in order to shift over into that role, that he got deported in the second deportation. He did not get taken to the palace. He's regular dude. He's priest guy. So he gets sent to their Shabar Canal Jewish area, almost like a little protected enclave where they would send all their Jewish folks to be indoctrinated. So they sent him down there. Now, Ezekiel, as I said, he had a 23-year-long ministry, and it was one of the most bizarre in all of history. The stuff that God asked him to do, and we're going to talk next week about his calling, The stuff God asked him to do was outlandish. It was so uncomfortable, so bizarre, you felt like God was just messing with him. It was something that if you ever received this type of calling, you would hate your life. It was miserable. And Ezekiel knew it was going to be miserable. Ezekiel was not just a priest, he operated in the prophetic. And he ministered to the Jews that were with him in Babylon. Now, a lot of his news reached back, but as I said, the beginning of it was, I'm warning you, warning you, warning you. Oh my gosh, you got destroyed. You got destroyed for a reason. You got destroyed because you deserve it. You got destroyed. But now he's working with these Jewish people that have no hope. They are cynical. They're bitter. They're angry. And when they lost their land and their temple, it made them feel they lost God. Those are the two things that allowed them to believe God was in their presence and they were his chosen people. So they had assumed God failed and he was never able to get them back. Hmm. That's where it begins. However, before Ezekiel received any news at all, he was pulled randomly into the throne room of God. And that's where we're going to spend our morning together. And when you read this stuff, it's going to freak you out. And that's on purpose. The reason why I want us to study this so deeply is that many of us feel stuck or hopeless because we believe that our problems are bigger than God. 
There are times we have to be reminded that what we are facing is not greater than our Lord. The book of Ezekiel pulls the curtain back. It makes the invisible visible. It explains that there is a separate yet parallel reality of the supernatural and heavenly that is operating at all times that's more real than the one we live in right now. You want to think about it in dimensions, that's fine. But here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. If you're watching online, make sure that you fire up the app. You can fill it along with us. Here we go. Heavenly reality changes everything. Heavenly reality changes everything. When your head understands there is heavenly reality, you begin to live your life on earth differently. You can't otherwise. So by the time you walk out of this room or stop hearing this message, you will think differently and you will make different decisions. It's impossible not to. So you ready to go? Let's do it. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if you are new to the Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Just go to page 692. Uh, Ezekiel, if you have a Bible, is towards the middle of the Bible, right? You can kind of drop it open and go from there. We're at page 692. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you are reading out of a different version, it's going to sound a little bit different. But we're going to begin in the throne room of God, or at least somewhere thereabouts. Here we go. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. How specific is that? As I was among the exiles by the Shabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of Yahweh came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzzy. It's actually probably Buzzy, but that's not funny. In the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal, and the hand of Yahweh was upon him there. Now we're going to jump ahead because he sees these massive creatures that we're about to study in a moment, but we're going to jump ahead. Let's go down to verse 26. And above the expanse over these creatures' heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like blue sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Wow. Pretty amazing, huh? Imagine that. You just, average day, boom, you're there. What are you going to do with that? Now, what we just studied and what we're going to be studying this morning is Ezekiel's best account of what happened. Here's the problem with being too specific. First of all, we have a genre issue. We are now talking about visions. We're now talking about possibly apocalyptic literature. We're now talking about um, heavenly things. So new literary rules apply. Usually in visions, the point is to make an emotional hit, not so much information transfer. When it shares information, it does so in metaphor, it is not saying that's how things look all the time. 
okay? I'm gonna tell you why in a little bit, how, why we know that. But when you watch what he's trying to say, you begin to get images and pictures of concepts. So we're gonna be talking through those. But the challenge of trying to be specific about what he saw is that in the original language, this is a mess. He is starting, stopping, saying things that aren't real sentences. He's making comments that we don't even know what they mean. He's using words that we're not familiar with. Everything is disjointed and messed up. It's almost like he tried to write it while he was experiencing it and had no clue what he's saying. Later in chapter 10, he reflects a little bit more on it and he's a little more calm, a little bit more even, a little bit more clear. But in these opening times, he is just flying with thoughts because he is overwhelmed. Now, I do believe there are a few things we can discern, even though we can't get super specific on things. There's a couple things I want you to notice. So the first one is it's not likely we're in the throne room of God yet. You're like, well, what do you mean? It says throne. I get it. I think God has multiple thrones. However, I think that what is being described is God's chariot. And I think we're in heaven's garage. <laughs> I think this is his car, right? Now you go, I don't understand. What are you talking about? Well, as we begin to describe it, you're going to be able to see that it has wheels. It's a movable throne. Other people got to see the throne room of God and they would describe a little bit more of a fixed throne and a fixed location. We are not there. This is actually describing something very specific. It is a chariot and the bottom of the chariot almost has like a platform that is sapphire blue and translucent. So there are wheels that are going to be under it. There's a platform then he's sitting on a throne on top of it, but with wheels, it makes it a vehicle, all right? Now, second thing we can learn, it's God sitting on the throne. It's God sitting there. And you go, well, what does God look like? I don't know, and Ezekiel doesn't know. Every single one of his phrases are like, I don't know, it was kind of like human. Well, was it human or not human? Well, no, it's totally not human. But it, like, I was trying to track on what he looked like, and I have no idea what he looked like. It's so weird. He kind of looked human because he had like body parts, it, I think. I'm not even quite sure. And there was like his waist, and well, I don't know if that's his waist. And You see how much he's kind of hemming and hawing all the time? Because he doesn't know what to say. Notice that God on a chariot suggests that he goes places. This whole idea of God is fixed and far away and he's left his creation is bogus. He is active, alive, moving, engaged at all times. If he wants to go, he's like, guys, we're going. Boom, they lock up and we go. He doesn't have to be carried, but he can be carried. The other thing I noticed about him, number three, was that God shimmers. His skin, whenever you see heavenly skin described, it tends to say it looks like burnished bronze. What does that mean? It's like a deep caramel color or a, a brown color of the skin. But what's interesting is the skin seems to shimmer underneath. It's like there's movement in the skin, like, like there's fire inside of it, right? Some of the heavenly creatures look like that. Sometimes God is mentioned looking like that. But notice this, it says from the waist up, he looked like gleaming metal. From the waist down, he looked like he was on fire. And there's bright flames of glory. There's an overpowering rainbow encompassing him. And so what happened to Ezekiel? He just possumed out. Ah! He just falls over. 
<laughs> what are you going to do? You got nothing, man. You're going to fall over when you see something like that. You can't handle it. It's so massive. You see, he wasn't the only one that saw stuff like that. Daniel had a vision of the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, kind of like almost like a manifestation of the Father, right? He said that his clothing was brilliant white, his hair was brilliant white, his throne and wheels were burning fire, and out of it, fire licked out continually from the throne, and thousands upon thousands served him. John the Revelator said that coming from the throne as he watched it were deafening sounds of the peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. The throne was surrounded by 24 other thrones on which sat 24 elders. Isaiah saw the throne room. He said, the throne is tall. It is massive. The room was filled with smoke. There were beings hovering over the throne, and every time they would talk, it was like a sonic boom. Man, what do you do with that? You kind of go, God, you know, some of us, we got active imaginations and we're kind of picturing this stuff. And there's some of us that are like, yeah, I'd, sorry, uh, I'm having a hard time connecting on that. Okay, so we have a couple um, online artist imageries. I just, I just want to show something to you to give you a feel. Can you take a look at the first photo? Imagine you're just hanging out on a regular day and you end up here. Now, there's this massive beings all over the place. There's stuff flying in. You don't even know what it looks like, and you feel so woefully small. You can't run away because there's no ground. You're just going to hover there and just stare. You got no way to affect your reality. Let's take a look at the next one. If we were to picture what his throne chariot looked like, you start seeing things like this. Imagine you see this and it rolls up in front of you. How are you gonna tell people what it is? You have no idea. Well, who was sitting on it? I don't know, it was like this guy thing. Well, what did he look like? I don't know, it looked like he was on fire. Well, was he on fire or not on fire? I don't know, I've never seen it before. And then you just keep hemming and hawing and people go, you're useless. He's like, I know. Imagine these spectacular visuals. You can pull it down. This is a sensory overload. Multi-sense. The one thing that I cannot convey to you is the sound. The sound was so loud, so deafening. I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where you can't hear yourself think. That's the sound. Sonic booms, thunderclaps. Lightning shooting to and fro. You're completely surrounded by massive overwhelming. That was his experience. So how does that vision make you feel? Because once again, this is not primarily information. This was to create a feeling. 20 years after, Ezekiel's not going to remember the details. But he'll never forget the feeling of being in the presence of God. So how do you feel? What if you were Ezekiel? What do you think you would experience? I think the easiest guess right off the bat, fear. Yeah? I don't think that's too much to, to stretch for. I think fear is pretty obvious because it's terrifying, right? 
Because here's the part that I think is even more unnerving than the experience. The God of the universe is staring at you. You're not in a crowd. There's no one else to look at. It's just you. And you had no warning why you're here. Is this your destruction? Is this your judgment? Is he here to undo you? You don't know. But his full purity, his full awesomeness is staring you in the eyes. What are you going to do? I think the next kind of experiential feeling you'd have is inadequacy and smallness. Would you agree? Because you can't run, you can't move, you can't even affect what's happening. You can't ask questions, you can't talk back, you can't clarify. There is so much noise, there's so much happening, you just have to experience it, and if it destroys you, it destroys you. But you are so little, you are so small. I think that this is important for all of us. And here's why. There is a benefit to fearing God. I'm going to use a version of the quote that I think that Pastor Brian first shared with me. It's one of my favorite quotes now. Here's how I remember it. When you fear God rightly, you fear little else. When you fear God rightly, you fear little else. You guys, too many of us are afraid of things in this life because we think they matter. When you are in the presence of this, I'm sorry, your bank account matters. Why? When you are in the presence of the Almighty, you're referring to you, what, being a big deal on a planet? There's billions of planets. You're a speck of dust on a speck of dust. Who do you think you are? You are no one. Nobody standing against you is anyone. When you are in the presence of the Almighty, you realize your diagnosis doesn't rock his world. It doesn't matter. And I think we need to feel that because we have allowed our problems to be bigger than our God. And that is absolutely inappropriate. We need to feel small. We need to have the awe of God because we're emotional beings. Sometimes God has to freak us out to remind us how massive and mysterious he is. Why? Because that's your protector. That's your provider. The guy sitting on the throne is your dad. Are you kidding me? Who can hurt you? What can touch you? With that, we have to have our minds blown and come apart and to realize, stop empowering your fear. Your worry, God's got it. Amen? All right, you ready to get weird? Back up to verse 4. Let's talk about some stuff that's a little hard to understand. Here we go. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Let's back up. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, 
and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. From the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were completely straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings touched one another, and each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, and they also had a lion on the right side, a face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each which touched the wing of another, while their other two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like a flash of lightning. Go to verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight toward one another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, like the sound of the tumult of the sound of an army. And when they stood, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, and when they stood still, they let down their wings. These are called cherubim. One is a cherub, multiple are cherubim. That's the plural version, okay? Side note, I hate cherub baby angels. (laughs) I'm just putting it out there. If you ever give me a picture of a little Cupid angel, I will destroy it and throw it in the trash. (laughs) Do not take one of these and make it a portly little child. (laughs) Amen. I mean, let's talk about them. What a cool entrance, right? They come in, there's a cloud. The cloud is lit up with fire. Lightning is shooting everywhere. And boom, out of it emerge with these massive wings, these four creatures. That's how you come in a room, right? That would be sweet. I totally want to do that every Sunday, right? I'd be like, ah, you know, it'd just be really weird. Notice the number four. It's everywhere. There's four beings. They got four faces. They got four wings. And it just keeps saying four, 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 four. Why is that? In the ancient world, especially in Israel, four was the idea of fullness or encompassing. In other words, you'll notice that they had the four faces. Those faces stand for certain things. What it allows them to be seen as is they are fully equipped to do anything they ever need to do at a moment's notice. There's no prep time. They've got it. Whatever it is, they're full and ready to go, and they're multifaceted. Cherubim are the closest beings, it appears, to God. They are the ones that hover under the throne or around the throne. They are the ones that are highly integrated into heaven. 
in a moment you're going to find out they're the ones that help him move the chariot. They are the ones that lift up God. What an incredible concept. They're living humanoids. They are not beings that are like animals. They are personalities. They can think, process, reason, interact. They're living. They're bizarre looking, right? Why are their legs straight? Why do they have hooves? Then they have these creepy human hands underneath their wings, and you're like, oh, man, this is just so bizarre. The four faces, human, eagle, ox, lion, what does that stand for? It stands for royalty, courage, ferocity, swiftness, stateliness, divinity, dignified, image of God. Are they talking about their nature or the nature of God? Are they reflecting him or are they reflecting themselves? I don't know. Maybe the answer is both. Because when God makes stuff, he puts his image into it. But I think in this moment, their faces are morphing right in front of his eyes. And they're showing him something about the nature of God, that he is high and lifted up, right? Do they always look like this? No, they don't. Do they always have four faces, right? Because here goes my mind. How do they lay down on their pillow? (laughs) The little ox face is like, I can't breathe. (laughs) You guys... The sound of their wings is like the sound of waves crashing into a cliff where you can't hear the person talking next to you. It's the sound of a thundering waterfall. It's the sound of an army, hoorah, all at the same time, marching forward. And that's just when they do this. You got it's overwhelming, right? They're always going straight, which really bugs me. I'm like, how can you always go straight? Okay, when you're facing four directions, it's easier, right? I'm going straight. I don't know about you, but I'm going straight. Like, oh, okay, great. What does it mean? It means purposefulness, intentionality. It never deviates. It was already planned, and it was carried out to perfection. That's what it means. They follow the Holy Spirit wherever he leads. He's their guide. They are fast. It says, and when they move, it's like a lightning flash that goes across the sky. They've already done what God asked them to do. Boom, they're back. You're like, man, this is mind-blowing. They're on fire. They're called burning coals of fire, like torches under their skin. They have these crazy wheels that we're going to talk about in a moment. But the reason why we know that they don't always look like this, that this was a morphing for... Ezekiel's perspective is because cherubim are mentioned a lot in Scripture. They're probably one of the most commonly mentioned angelic beings or heavenly beings outside of maybe messenger angels. They they figure, uh, excuse me, they factor in um, the temple a lot. I mean, it's not only the temple. I mean, you got to remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they got cast out, who blocked the entrance to get back in? One of these, Right? You have one of these with a flashing sword going, you're not getting back in here. And you go, no, I'm not. And you'd move. (laughs) In the temple, I don't know if you remember this. Let's go back to the Ark and the Covenant, right? I mean, it was a valuable enough box for Indiana Jones to risk his life for. Okay, 
that golden box, on the top of it, it had two golden cherubim with their wings outstretched, touching one another, hovering over the lid. The lid is called the mercy seat, where God would show up with his presence. But notice those cherubim only have one face. That's not, they don't always have four faces. It's shaping to, in order to tell you something. In the uh, Solomon's temple, they had massive statues of cherubim in the Holy of Holies. They were 15 feet tall with a 15-foot wingspan. They were made out of wood and overlaid with gold. So when they stretched out, one wing touched the edge of the wall, the other wing touched the other one's wing, then they would touch the wall. So it was a 30-foot wingspan all the way across, touching. You end up realizing there's a curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. Remember the curtain that was torn from the top to the bottom when Jesus died? That curtain was embroidered with what? Cherubim on the curtain. Another translation of cherub is curtain. So the irony is you have a curtain embroidered on a curtain right? And they are covering the presence of God because people couldn't handle all of it. So they were the shield, the priest. They would convey the glory of God and contain some of it, but give God's news, and then they would return back the praise. They're such mighty, integral parts of God's way of doing things. They would be, in my estimation, outside of the fact that he put some of him in us, Outside of us, they're the greatest creation God ever made. If you want to know the most staggering thing, just realize that's probably what Lucifer was or is. Satan's one of those. And when you talk about the might and the power and the strength and the speed, now you understand. He was the closest to God that made the betrayal that much worse. His job was to serve the king and he served himself. Hmm. All right, you guys ready to get bizarre? Here we go. Verse 15. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of yellowish gold barrel. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all over it. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. When the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. What the heck are we talking about? I mean, I want you to picture like a gyroscope. Take a look at this picture. This is what I'm talking about. Imagine intersecting a wheel within a wheel going, right? It's constantly spinning. You have these concentric movement where it almost turns into, at full speed, it turns into a ball, right? These are the wheels of the chariot. What happens is the angels rest next to God, but when, and the wheels are right next to him, when it's time to move the chariot, they then have the wheels go down under them. They lift up. They throw up their wings up top, and they lift up the throne of God, and there is locomotion. 
They are the wheels. They are what supports that chariot. That's why in the psalmist, when he says, and the Lord rides the cherubim, it means they're his movement source. What are those wheels? I have no idea. I got nothing for you. No scholars know, nobody knows. I mean, yeah, they look funky. I guess they're teal, glimmering, shining, crystalline, eyeball-looking wheels. <laughs> what is happening? Why is the spirit in the whirling wheel? I don't know. I don't know. I think one thing that's important to remember is that if you can get your arms wrapped around God or your mind wrapped around God, it's not God. You guys, he's not like us. We keep doing this, well, he's kind of like, stop. You already messed up. It's not like anything here. He doesn't even operate off the same principles. Anything you've ever seen is a dumbed down version of him trying to be kind. That's the only thing we can see. We can't understand this. Now, before we move out of here, even though Ezekiel didn't see it, there's one other living being that shows up commonly in heaven, and it's called a seraphim. One is a seraph, multiple are seraphim. And I just want to show you uh, an interesting rendition of what they might look like. Take a look at this photo. What if that shows up to you? I would run. I do not want that thing looking at me. I don't want that, right? It's six wings. It's full of eyes all over it. It's what you oh, what? Okay, let's go to the next one. Like just trying to explain that. You're trying to explain that to other people. What did they look like? Uh, I have no idea. I think they had six wings and they had a bunch of eyeballs. That's about all I know, right? Weird, yes? Okay, here's what we know about them. Unlike cherubim that have four wings, they have six wings. Two, they cover their faces. Two, they cover their lower half. And with two, they use for flying. They have hands underneath. And this is what's so fascinating. When John saw them, he said they're on the side of the throne like attendants of God, full of eyes all over. They each had a different face. One had a lion face. One had an ox face. One had a man's face. One had an eagle's face. That sound familiar? Same concept, but worship and praise seem to be their primary role. Why? If you've ever heard the phrase, holy, 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 it was a seraphim. They're the ones that say that. They're the worship leaders of God. They're the ones that minister over the altar. They swoop down. If you remember when Isaiah was like, I can't even be in this room. I'm too sinful. And a seraphim gets dispatched, goes down with the tongs, takes out a coal from the altar of God, touches his lips and says, you have been purified. They're the priests of God in that sense. They hover around, and every time they say, holy, 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 they'll say, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know this. Every time they say that, all the 24 elders, they stand up, boom, fall down, and throw their crowns down before God. This is heaven. Wow. Why do we need the curtain pulled back? Because that's more real than this. It's been around a lot longer. We are just a little bubbled creation field 
very contained, and we think we're everything. We are simply not. There is a parallel existence, a parallel dimension operating right now. They can see us, we can't see them. The Bible says that angels attend church services, that they sing with us, that they observe us, that they minister to us. The Holy Spirit is moving through our congregation right now. You can't see him, but he's here. When we depart from this bubble into a greater glory, we go to the more real. Why can't we have better descriptions of heaven stuff and God stuff? Like, how come we can't? Like, we're just trying to get our arms wrapped around it. How do we have a relationship? It'd be nice if we could just have a clear picture. Why is it? Because the minute you start, you're off. One of the Ten Commandments said, don't you dare make an image of me because everything you can imagine is too limited and you're gonna shrink me and I don't wanna be shrunk. I need you to understand that even the very concepts of how I interact, you have no capacity to understand. My form, you cannot understand. My mind, you cannot understand. So whatever you're going to pretend to make, what are you going to make a little statue of me? What are you going to make a picture of me? It is woefully short and it will shrink people's faith. Don't try to contain me. I'm so much bigger than you. If God is on the throne and we are attached to him, we're going to be okay. Our circumstances do not dictate what is real. God dictates what is real. From God's perspective, he can see it all. From his throne, he can control it all. And knowing that somewhere, someone is greater, interacting with our world comforts us and lets us know we are secure in him. The book of Philippians gives us five words that change everything. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand hand. Here's how it says it. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand, therefore do not worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God is never telling you to pretend He's never telling you to stuff your emotions. God is never telling you to avoid. God is telling you practical truth. If he wasn't around, it might be scary, but he is. And he just changed the scenario. The disciples in a boat that's being capsized is a problem. A boat that's trying to be capsized with a Jesus in it doesn't turn over. It changes the scenario. His point was, you don't need to worry because I'm here. And my children, I'm always here. My Holy Spirit is in you. You will never, ever experience aloneness 
for the rest of your existence because I'm with you. So I don't know what you're facing today, but I know that and handle it. Let's have our prayer team come on up here. Let's close out. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us just a snippet of what it would look like to observe heaven dumbed down. God, we can't even figure out your simple images, much less who you are. In this moment, we take comfort in knowing that you are our protector and our provider for all who call themselves children of God, for all those who have been saved by the Savior that have been transformed into sons and daughters of God. We walk out of here with our head held high. Lord, if we saw you, we would collapse just because of our humanness, but our hearts would always know that you're the tender one, you're the patient one, you're the sweet one, that even though you could unleash on an enemy, the wrath is not for your children. Even though you bring discipline, you do it out of love, and you're always wanting better for your kiddos. So right now, God, in that both peaceful and slightly unsettled place, we emerge to go be the church in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.